0: Michelle Oshman is Vice President of External Affairs of Bio and the Executive Director of Bio's Council of State Bioscience Associations, CSBA, advancing public policies that support the bioscience industry in partnership with their state based member associations. Before joining BIO in 2020, Michelle had a successful 18-year career at Eli Lilly and Company where she led their federal advocacy. She is a neuroscience researcher working both in clinical development and corporate leadership roles. Uncommon for people working in public policy, Michelle earned a Six Sigma black belt in statistics in 2005 and is a closeted quant. Michelle, it's great to see you.
1: It is great to see you, Duane. I I am so excited to have you here and here we are toward the end of the BIO convention and the energy is still really high. Yeah. So.
0: And we're here at our booth on the floor and it's been uh, it's been a great, it, it's been a very successful conference. I think you guys must be really happy. You took the, rolled the dice and it, you uh, did well. Well, I think <laughs> so.
1: I think we've done very well. And it's, you know, again, the, uh, just the thrill of being back together. This is my first bio convention as a bio employee. I probably came oh, to. Oh, that's true. That's I, right. Yeah, yeah. I came to probably a dozen of them when I was with Lily and I, um, you know, I led our federal alliance development, really the third party relationships with, um, in partnership, obviously with our federal team and um, you might think, gosh, there's not a lot of policy stuff here, but there's really a lot. And um, There's
0: been a ton. And yesterday we released our study that was obviously sponsored by Bio. And the
1: See, you didn't let me tee that up <laughs> so you could brag. <laughs> like, y- you know, I, I would. Dwayne, you released a study yesterday. It's a great media. <laughs> hey, who's doing
0: this damage? So <laughs> 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 no, th- now, we actually uh, soft launched it on Sunday at mm-hmm. your meeting for yeah? the CSBA yeah. and had great feedback. Mm-hmm. And yesterday, it was, it's amazing. Just. Uh, it really took over the policy discussion yeah. uh, across the biotech community it was fantastic and you uh, laudatory remarks for you guys you guys did a hell of no. a job well with that. thank
1: you but again i think par- you know that is uh, certainly not the first and won't be the last study we've partnered with you on and you know it's always great to work with your team
0: well thanks and obviously one of the big topics of conversation this week has been you know biotech as the joke i said yesterday in the panel. You know, a boat is a hole in the water. You throw money, and a biotech company is a furnace in which you throw boats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, liquidity yeah. and cash is the foundation of this sector, and the equity markets have taken a beating. Obviously, the Council of State Biotech Associations. This is obviously probably top of mind to them. I mean, what are they saying? What are they saying to you about this?
1: Sure, sure. So I'll, I'll back up just a little bit to sure. say what CSBA CSBA is Please. and what we do. Um, so I lead external affairs for Bio, as you uh, kindly noted, and CSBA is a network of 48 state-based bioscience associations all independent run by um, uh, you know with their own boards of directors um, but they're really the boots on the ground they're the ones who in the states have so much credibility and so much sort of local sway and 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 really the the very small biotechs in particular um, their first membership in an association of this sort is with their state association so we have uh, associations in uh, forty. 45 states plus Puerto Rico cool. um, and uh, it's been great the vast majority of them are, are here today um, here here this week
0: when did you take that over specifically how long you been in the role
1: so that that was part of my job when I came on board in 2020 beginning of 2020 so um,
0: and this is the first time you've actually had everybody then face to face
1: yeah yeah so it's really exciting and you were there to witness it on Sunday <laughs> so, um, so yeah and uh, we will be having our annual retreat in December uh, in DC so you know if you're in town we'd love to see you again. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the state associations, like I said, they're a, they're the ones that have member companies, when I say companies kind of almost with air quotes, just because these are folks, they, they might be one individual who just sure. spun off of a university. And those really, they're looking for that capital formation opportunity. They're really looking um, for the SBIR opportunity. and And these are folks who are really scrappy and really excited about the work they do and their science is amazing um, but the state associations understandably are concerned I mean the, their revenue source is memberships you know and you know the, the more the, the market tanks, the fewer companies that are going to be out there. And yeah. our state associations really are supreme advocates um, with state economic development offices. And they really work with the SBIR offices and others to bring dollars into the state. Um, but, you know, seeing, seeing the, the challenges companies are facing with capital formation right now, um, it's, it's, uh, it's not nothing, I would say.
0: No, definitely. And the point I always like to make to people, if you look back before COVID... February of 2020 on the NASDAq, eighty percent of the new listings on the NASDAQ were biotech mm-hmm. listings I mean it, it, biotech's been so dominant to the u s equity markets and now it's it's been a bloodbath this week it's been awful
1: it's been a challenge i I hope there's some silver lining I will say on uh, Tuesday uh, I hosted a lunch with several of our emerging company uh, CEOs and uh, a number of uh, patient focused organizations that that you know are in the markets. I mean, so JDRF T1D Fund, Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, CMT Foundation, and, and these are sophisticated investors who uh, truly are, you know, I think a, a critically important uh, avenue for funding for for a lot of our our especially our smaller companies. And we had folks from SBIR there as well. And you know, across the board, um, one of the questions some of our uh, you know board members were asking is. Is the investing environment different when folks are, um, when your source of revenue, like you know the the nonprofit groups, is uh, charitable, essentially? Right. Um, and it's interesting because you've seen an uptick almost in some of the charitable donations for certain areas, certainly in the mental health and neuroscience area, and because COVID's driving a mental health crisis as Obviously, well. Obviously, yeah. Um, but you know, these are also. Uh, really shrewd investors so um, my hope is that we can develop a sleeve of business as it were um, in partnership with the, the sort of non-dilutive or um, you know uh, philanthropic based organizations and hopefully make a little dent in some of these challenges but um, you know that the solution is going to be obviously something <laughs> much much bigger than any, th- any one uh, tactic that we might have
0: your background in neuroscience and knowing about startups and then knowing, you know, certainly 18 years at Lilly, you've got a, a great knowledge on drug discovery. If we look back to CMS and a few months ago when FDA had approved the drug and CMS decided to back away from that and set up their own rules and regulations that would require extra evidence even above and beyond what FDA was doing. They threatened something similar with the CAR-Ts in 2018, the CAR therapies, the, you know, the cancer treatments using T-cells. But they pulled back due to probably a lot of advocacy and a huge amount of blowback. There was still that blowback this time around Alzheimer's. Yet they crossed the Rubicon. Why do you think they did that? What What do you think was the the straw that broke the camel's back, as it were?
1: I I can't be in the minds of sure. <laughs> CMS, so I can't know for sure. I'll I'll say from a um, the other half of my uh, job, right, working with the patient advocacy community. The community has been fighting for something to fight for, as it right. were, right. It, You know, everything we talked about for the last 15 years working with Alzheimer's groups is, if we have a treatment, we will get access. We will fight for it. I don't think anyone anticipated that it would be this restricted, um, And you know, I think media reports have all kinds of different suppositions as to why the Rubicon was crossed. I think what, what I'm most I think impressed by and proud of is the, the patient community, and that's across the board, whether it's us against Alzheimer's, but also partnering with the rare disease community, um, Alliance for Aging research. They've really come together to say this will not stand, right right? This is not acceptable. Decisions that happen at the company level obviously have to be done for business reasons, but my hope is that as the next treatments come down the pipeline and make it through their, you know, uh, PaJUFA date and hopefully are approved, that there's a better understanding of why this treatment's important. Now, I'll back up a little bit and say that um, one of the requirements to, to enter the trials for the, the Biogen drug, but also you know, presumably to be prescribed that medication was a positive PET amyloid scan, Right. diagnostic confirmation of the, the amyloid that's been laying down for the last two decades in the in the patient's brain. And in fact, that's not reimbursed, and that's still a fight, and has, right. is still in their CED after having been approved, I think, in maybe 2017. So, so we have an environmental crisis. I think when you think about the Alzheimer's tsunami, the silver tsunami, um, this is going to devastate our healthcare system. I, The fact that we can't even get an approved diagnostic agent to be reimbursed and the medication that requires that diagnostic agent to then treat the disease, obviously uh, reimbursed. So there's a challenge there.
0: On that challenge, first off, this was the first drug approved and there are three or four more coming down the pipeline. But when we testified last month, we pointed out, look, you know, these numbers don't work anymore if you put this four year delay and restrict it to 1,000 people in a clinical trial. Okay. This is not going to work. And we told them these drugs would probably come off the market. Now, Biogen has stopped commercial support for their asset. So some of the claims that we were chicken little are, are, have gone away. But Lily's appears to be still progressing. So do you think they think this is going to maybe have a political solution here after the midterms? What, what, what's your reckoning on that?
1: My hope is that. Any lessons learned on the regulatory pathway for whether it's it's the recently um, withdrawn biogen treatment or any others, increasing the certainty quality data of of the clinical pathway, the clinical trials, um, getting that getting to that Padufa date hopefully they can at least address the criticisms that, that CMS sort of put forth uh, for the more recent uh, decision That so I don't know that anybody thinks a political solution necessarily might be in the cards but I think that companies like Lilly are you know continue to be committed to high-quality data, high-quality research, and I think in a perfect system, the data should tell the story and the efficacy and safety profile is what the FDA is looking at it. And who are any of us to second-guess those kinds of decisions? But
0: well, From what I understand, CMS didn't have one neuroscientist on the panel when they made that decision. Hmm. It's unfortunate, and it seems like it's opened up a Pandora's box now. It's sort of game on on the accelerated approval. Everyone's going after it.
1: But we've seen that even before this decision, right? We, You know, Oregon has had an 1115 sure. waiver, you know, saying, hey, guess what? Differential reimbursement, restricted access if your drug um, was not, quote, unquote, fully approved. Um, and I think there is a lot of the best we can do from a nonprofit community, patient advocacy in particular, but also our state associations have done everything they can to educate their lawmakers that uh, surrogate endpoints are not, they're not, Lower quality. No, they're intended to be leveraged so that you can get that treatment to patients sooner, um, along with that commitment that you'll continue to do um, the studies uh, required by the agency. But it's broken, unfortunately, if uh, if you know those confirmatory uh, studies are highly restricted and defined by CMS.
0: Yeah, calling into question the surrogate endpoint is seriously the most damaging part of all this debate. We had done a lot of work on the CAR T treatments, what we found when we did that work the surrogate endpoint for progression-free survival was hugely statistically significant between the performance of the two drugs in high-risk patients. And that was unequivocal, Point zero 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 two. So yes, we had a firm surrogate that was validated that, yes, this, there's a difference here and we can see it. Now, what was interesting, even though it was only two and a half years of outcomes data, we still had overall survival, but not at the normal statistical 0.055%, 95% certainty level. It was at 90%, 0.1% that's not statistically valid. And according to that JAMA article that was written, that was very, uh, this controversial article last week, very critical of surrogate endpoints, that would have fallen into one of the drugs that did not have a confirmatory trial showing evidence of outcomes. But if you're a patient with metastatic cancer with a failed stem cell treatment and you've got no opportunity there and you're looking at a 90% probability that this will perform better than the other one, why wouldn't you take that? Isn't that enough? I mean, that seems pretty logical to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think going back to your earlier question, crossing the Rubicon with Alzheimer's as opposed to um, uh, in, in the oncology world with the car I think Alzheimer's research, neuroscience research in general is hard. All research is hard.
0: 95, 99.5% failure rate for Alzheimer's.
1: Absolutely. And so uh, when I think about the projects I've worked on throughout my career, it's it's heartbreaking. Um, you, you have to... Unlike, you know, progression-free survival or, uh, or tumor bulk or...
0: TMTV you know, or any of these any, other metrics, yeah. You,
1: you are measuring something that is already getting worse without intervention in Alzheimer's disease. A neurodegenerative disease has a, has a downward course. Now, that's true in cancer as well, of course. But the measurement of that can be very tangible when you have a, a tumor. Clinical trials tend toward those diseases that can be measured relatively quickly. And that's important because if you have pancreatic cancer, you absolutely want, want treatments out there. The challenge is the investment over time when you've got a patent clock or a DPE clock ticking. Um, that calculus becomes harder and harder. And I think Alzheimer's disease is sort of the unfortunate and yet pinnacle example of, of the, you know, all of those financial realities and considerations that investors need to make when they decide whether or not to support your company, all of those are working against you in, in something uh, like Alzheimer's disease.
0: And that's what we found with our research on the accelerated approval, contrary to popular belief. The overwhelming majority of these things finished and complete their confirmatory trials with FDA within three years. In fact, 25% of them are less than two years. I mean that that data did, was quite shocking to us because you read all the hype and you read all the negativity around what a disaster this pathway and how people are getting ripped off and payers are getting ripped off. And you're like, well, wait a minute. The rhetoric is not matching the data here because this looks really good, you know. And yes, there's about 25% that take a long time. The longest time was the Goucher disease of genzyme, which only had 40 patients. So it was an outcomes trial for 18 years. I mean, it's a tiny trial in a very, very tiny population. It's probably the entire population or all you could get. I mean, wouldn't that make sense that you'd want then to have a pathway where you can accommodate those patients as opposed to basically saying, sorry, your population is not big enough. You can't do a confirmatory trial. Sayonara. Is that, is that where we're going?
1: Well, I mean, I, I, you know, if I had a crystal ball, I'd be a billionaire and probably in Bora Bora rather than sitting here with you in San Diego. Well, you'd be but
0: investing in more crystal balls, probably.
1: Probably. <laughs> you know, that's actually a really good point. I feel like, you know, I, so for your listeners, if I may. Please. Um, I tell people all the time that Dwayne Schulteis is my fourth <laughs> favorite economist in the world. And, and I am enough of a I'm not even in the closet anymore. I'm a quant.
0: <laughs> you are a quant, that, that officially. officially. You've been stated on the Vital Health Podcast, you're a quant, Michelle.
1: You know, I, and this is only, you know, after, you know, Stephen Levitt, Stephen Dubner, and Shane Carved Anthem. And so that's where you fall. Like, I, I, and John Nash is no longer living. So, I mean, you, you, you know.
0: God bless John Nash.
1: But, uh, you know, so you think about all of the, well, behavioral factors, behavioral economics—all of these factors that go into whether a company decides to move a, an asset forward—and you know everything that that you cited from the most recent study comes into play. So, yeah. you know, you've got a ticking patent clock. You've got you know shorter, shorter time of potential demand realization where you can make your money back. And then if you figure, if you know that that payer is most likely going to be. You know, Medicare, how do you decide? We know it's the right thing to do. People, you know, are going to be, more and more people are going to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's every year. Yeah. And, and that is a scourge on humanity. And yet, it's also a very, very challenging economic reality that, that all of the folks here at the convention are talking
0: about. Absolutely. What's interesting, if you think back before 2004, before we had the prescription drug benefit, all of the rhetoric, all the talk was government and state and federal working to try and promote and capture all of the new technologies, whether that be stratified medicines, orphan or indications, targeted therapies, gene therapies, cell therapies. I mean there was a there was a consensus around the fact that we were gonna put incentives around these, whether this was the accelerated approval or the prescription drug benefit, and we were all gonna to work together and pat ourselves on the back, the US now dominates this. Overwhelmingly, 50% of all assets that came to market, if you look at where they originated, they originated in small US biotechs under half a billion dollars, $500 million a year. I mean, that's an amazing statistic, because in 1980, 60% of all drugs originated in Europe. So we've gone from putting in place the prescription drug benefit to now having a hugely adversarial relationship. How do we get around this? How do we fix this? How do we square this circle?
1: There are a couple of uh, ideas to fix things that perhaps um, will backfire, and I would highly discourage their use as any <laughs> instrument to fix uh, much of anything. Uh, last year, we celebrated the 40th anniversary of the bayh Act. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about the impact the bayh Act has had, really that is that the intellectual property... From an invention that that might have benefited from some amount of federal funding, progresses as that molecule progresses. It's not necess- you know, and to allow then the patentability of that molecule, allowing the commercialization of that, that's really really important. And so you mentioned 50% of the drugs come out of small biotechs. Well, a lot of those small biotechs are spun out from academic environments and. If they didn't if the Baidol Act did not exist, what would happen then? Assets couldn't move forward or couldn't be patentable or couldn't ever be commercially viable. So um, you know, there certainly has been uh, talk about kind of repealing or or using the margin rights within Baidol yeah. as a clue uh,
0: Cludgel, cludgel. Sorry, cludgel. Cludgel. God, it's, it's easy word to tend in the day
1: seventeen thousand and twelve <laughs> of Bio Convention, and I can barely speak. Um, but but using that as a blunt force instrument, essentially to force pricing, and that's certainly not the intent of the march, in component of BiDOL. No, um, you know other bad ideas that are out there. You know, why don't we just import? Drugs from Canada. Well, perhaps because Prime Minister Trudeau has said, uh, you know, no, um, but also because that's you're upsetting that sort of that capital market environment. That the reality is, you can't you can't sell your medication in in Europe if you haven't gone through their H T A system. You want patients across the world to have access to your medications, but you also need to rely in a relative certainty. That there are at least some marketplaces in your global environment that will make the investment back. The more you know, bad ideas that come out of Congress, the more bad ideas that I think well-meaning people bring forward um, is is just constrict that pipeline of innovation.
0: We just did a podcast with Denny Seiden, who's the head of the Arizona Chamber of Commerce, who had written quite a forward article, quite critical, <laughs> called it "Bye Bye Bye." He published it in real clear policy, and it really lit up the Internet. We were surprised he also quoted some of our research mm-hmm. in it. You bring up another really good point, and that's about how a lot of these drugs are, are very small and very tiny indications. Well, if we look at our research, you know, we found that 85 percent of the available untreated orphan conditions today right now are for populations of less than one in one million, very, very small. Without the accelerated approval as it stands right now, Mm -hmm. do you think those have any opportunity to be developed?
1: It's a challenging environment. I will say at our venture philanthropy sort of roundtable, one of the nonprofit CEOs said, look... The the best way forward for the rare community is to sort of gang up or partner up, right, on like conditions. So clearly, you know, if a pediatric neurodegenerative disease, whether it's it's Batten syndrome or neiman pick type C, the, if the if um, there is an opportunity to, I think at least collect more patient data that may hopefully be additional indications for these molecules that that may be able to help but again those those clinical programs aren't cheap um it seems like a it's a very daunting prospect to think that we want to cure everybody but the folks with the rarest of the rare diseases um i think if accelerated approval goes away will
0: um bear the brunt of the impact Yeah. One of the other things that happened recently, a couple weeks ago, the PBMs were dragged in front of Congress and given a good old fashioned lashing, a congressional beat up, quite unexpected. And the Federal Trade Commission just announced they're doing an investigation of PBMs. PBMs are supposed to optimize the system. What's your opinion of the PBMs on some of the drug pricing situations? What's BIO's position? What's the position of the CSBA?
1: I'll say in the position of Michelle Oshman, just okay. so that I don't, you know, put, uh, you know, uh, make any career limiting moves. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, I, I, having having worked in this access environment for, you know, well over a decade, I, I'll say that um, just, just for kicks, because I am a quant, I... Uh, <laughs> I did a little bit of research to, f- to figure out the Fortune 100 U.S. companies. Just what are those companies? Okay, all three major PBMs are on that list. Well, let's make that list a little smaller. What are the top 50? All three PBMs are still on that list. Guess who's not on that list?
0: Any of the pharma or biotech companies. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so if you know that these are organizations that are very, very successful in, in the, their investment thesis or their profit model. Um, there's not a lot of incentive to change that. But you have to ask, where, where how did they get on that Fortune 50 list if they don't, if they don't innovate, they don't, they don't make life-saving treatments? Um, they're doing something right, and it may not be the right thing for patients.
0: New York University publishes a profitability index every year, and we always use that as our raw data to look at the sector. The big criticism here, Wow, well, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is aggressively profitable, blah, blah, blah. If you look at the profitability over the last couple of years, okay, yeah, Pfizer's done well. has done quite well. Okay, they had two very strong uh, vaccines against COVID. Fine. They should have done strong. and Congratulations to them. And mm-hmm. We're all thankful that they did. But if you look at the industry as a whole profitability index, if you look, net net profits about 14 percent, right under the soft drink sector ranks about an 18th or 19th as a sector. Why do you think people are so, have such a misunderstanding about the actual profitability that they'd net net be better investing in an index of soft drinks companies than pharmaceutical companies?
1: I think this goes back to the public sentiment and, and um, you know, distaste, I think, for for the Biopharmaceutical industry as a whole, and, and people make decisions based on their experiences. See, I sound like Stephen Dubner now. I'm, <laughs> I'm, um, uh,
0: well, Thomas, Sowell, you know, there are there are no good and bad decisions, just trade-offs, right? So,
1: so the pain that folks feel is at the pharmacy counter.
0: It's the it's that out-of-pocket 5%. It's the
1: out-of-pocket. And so, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times I'm, I'm in a, a CVS in January and, you know, I hear audible gasps at Perfect. the pharmacy checkout counter. And unfortunately, you know, the the out-of-pocket burden and, of course, the deductible and it's painful for people.
0: And if you look at Part B, you mm-hmm. know, Medicare Part B, which everything is all in on the hospital insurance, people are very favorable. Uh, all the surveys Gallup. Everyone's done a lot of work on this. People like Part B. Mm-hmm. They think Part B is great. Yeah. But they hate Part D.
1: <laughs> because they just feel it more directly. And, and even in, in the hospital benefit, you don't feel the economic burden directly, at least until you're at home for <laughs> a little while. Right. I mean, right. and your billing comes in the form of, you know, 17 different envelopes that are from different physician practices or X, Y, Z. But there's sort of one answer for when you need to go get your, you know, your inhaler for asthma. And it's, it's, you see that you see either, you know, a $90 copay or, uh, the
0: Five thousand dollar copay. My father's uh, dealing with COPD right mm. now, and he's in the midst of all this. And yeah, you're right. It, it is a real wallet issue, absolutely. And he knows the work I do too. So mm-hmm. we all, we have many long discussions about this. So do
1: you think that when when like your mom was pregnant with you, they said we really want a quant out of this? <laughs> we want this deal to result in a big time. Quant, like economist, is is that where they were going with that? Because uh, they succeeded, I will say. Well, when I
0: was five, I said, you know, I want to be a health economist working in Europe, yep. living in Belgium, and then traveling, you know, 200,000 miles a year, living on flight 950 or 951 of United. Yeah, that was really my life ambition. Wow.
1: So, I mean, you're prescient. <laughs> nailed, I mean, you yeah, nailed, nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. Absolutely nailed, nailed it. it.
0: <laughs> so, final final question for you, Michelle. Everything that could be thrown at the industry and the sector and patients now is, is being thrown at them. It's, it's an absolute... It's a food fight, absolute mess. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. Next year, we're sitting at Bio in Boston. We're sitting at this table, Vital Health Podcast, having a conversation. Where are we at?
1: Well, you know, we'll see how uh, the economy starts to uh, unfold as opposed to unravel, Um, sort of see, you know, what, what, Will the capital markets have made a, you know, bounced back? How will what will the investment environment look like? How how many partnering meetings will happen at Bio 2023, and how many will result in really strong licensing deals? Um, you know, my hope is that things are looking up. I'll say that, um, from an industry perspective, having worked inside a company and having, you know, been part of the the clinical research teams, there is a spark inside every scientist, and they. They genuinely believe in what they do. So, you know, one of my, my uh, longtime friends who's, who retired from Lilly and as a discovery neuroscientist who happens to be here at convention, he, in his lab, you know, he did electrophysiology. So he was basically creating these tiny, tiny pipettes and putting them in tiny, tiny mouse brains, and you could hear dopamine fire on this cool machine. Interesting. Wild stuff. And he kept a quote. He made it into a poster in his lab. And it was basically a letter from a patient with schizophrenia who said, look, the work you did to create the medicine you did means I can write you this letter. And I want to thank the scientists. So there is a spark inside each scientist that they want to see that their science benefits humanity. I don't think that's going to change. And I really genuinely hope that that we can continue to fuel that innovation e- ecosystem in a meaningful way so more scientists get to have that poster on their wall. Well,
0: that's fantastic, and what a great place to end this conversation. Michelle, thank you very much to the CSBA for all your support on this uh, study we released. It would not have been possible without you getting a thing out there, and yeah. it's been so nice to have a good partnership with you folks at Bottle.
1: Absolutely, and if I can just plug for a moment, um, in October, uh, CSBA will be releasing our every other annual I don't know what is that biannual
0: biannual I guess, yeah, I guess. It, it can go both ways like be two. yeah we'll go biannual it,
1: the, our techonomy report which is a, a report on you know state economic development and and our theme this year for the report is uh, you know biotech future basically paving the way for that economic recovery and, and uh, we really hope to have some exciting data to share at that point in time
0: thank you Michelle it's always great to see you thanks for your time thank you the executive producer of the vital health podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen Laughlin. This vital health podcast is a production of vital transformation, LLC copyright 2022.